So last week we started looking at a series on David, and we're going to be uh, spending some time together looking at a variety of things that Scripture illustrates through David's life, and uh, some very interesting, very applicable things for us in our day and age, even as we look at some of the things that he dealt with during his particular era. And today we're going to be wrestling with this question. We're going to revisit this question as we look at 1 Samuel 17 together. But the question I'm just going to be throwing out several times today is this. What would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to start off. Now, I'll just tell you ahead of time, 1 Samuel 17 very well-known portion of Scripture. It's also a very long portion of Scripture. So some of it we'll read together, and then some of it I'm going to highlight some of the key verses. But to set the stage, I just want to read together the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 17. So just follow along with me as I read. 1 Samuel 17, starting with verse 1, it says this, "'Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle.'" And they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the, on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you give us all sorts of opportunities to be thinking about who you are and what you do in our lives. Lord, we know that there are all sorts of things that from from time to time swim through our minds, all sorts of things that are concerns that weigh our hearts down, and all sorts of things that I think, if we let them, can prompt us to feel anxious or to worry. But Lord, you show us time and time again that, that when our faith, when our confidence is in you, That is not a misplaced confidence. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you can accomplish miraculous things through ordinary people. 
And Lord, we've seen you do that historically. We see you do that in the portion of Scripture we're looking at together today. And we see you do that in our lives as well. So Lord, help us to look for your hand at work and help us please to submit ourselves over to you. And now as we look at your word together, we pray that you'd speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are several stories in the Bible that I think seem almost to be universally known. And the biblical account of David and Goliath is certainly somewhere near the top of the list, if not toward the top of the list. And sometimes I think it's even hard to make it through a day without that story being referenced in one way or another. I, I even noticed last week I was watching football, and uh, I happened to hear one of the announcers describe a running back as he was trying to run through a very large defensive line, and he's trying to run through the line, and they, and they reference this as like a David and Goliath-type moment, even as I was watching football. And when you hear the story of David and Goliath referenced, I wonder what kind of applications come to your mind, and, and um, you know, I even wrestle with that as well. Like, what, what am I thinking about when I hear the story of David and Goliath? And what do we, what do we believe the Lord wants us to, to glean from an account like this? Is it just that we can face challenges? Is there something deeper than this? What does the Lord want us to take from a portion of Scripture like this? Frankly, I think that there are multiple applications that we could take from this particular chapter of Scripture, and during our time together, I actually want to highlight some of them, but one particular application stands out to me when I read a passage like this that, again, I think is helpful to ask in the form of a question, and I asked the question a moment ago, but I want to ask it again. What would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? That's a question I want us to be thinking about. So we work our way through the context, uh, the context of this scripture. And when you look at uh, 1 Samuel 17, as this chapter begins, we're told of a conflict that was in the midst of taking place between the Philistines and the armies of Israel. Now, historically, conflict between these two nations was rather common, but when you look at this portion of scripture, you see a new element that gets added to this conflict. We're told here that day after day, the Philistine army and the Israeli army, they would line up and they would face each other in battle formation. So just picture them all lining up and trying their best to look mean and trying their best to look aggressive and trying their best to intimidate the the other line. But while they would line up, the Philistines would now bring out their champion, Goliath, and Goliath's task was to get in the head of the people of Israel. His goal was to mock them. His goal was to intimidate them. And he stood out there in front of them, and he actually offered to do something that is somewhat common throughout the course of history. Sometimes armies, if you've seen this before, maybe you've read up on this, instead of everybody getting into a battle, they would select a representative few or sometimes one person from each army to fight, and then that person would represent the army. And so you see Goliath offering an option like that in this portion of Scripture. Now, when you look at Goliath and you see the things that are referenced here in this this portion of, of God's Word, Goliath, we're told, was absolutely huge. He was gigantic. In English measurements, now I know that it doesn't give us English measurements here as we were just reading this, but in English measurements, people estimate that he would be approximately nine foot nine inches tall. And so a few days ago, I thought it would be interesting if I could just print up a picture of Goliath's face, 
all right? And so this is exactly how he looked. Um, and uh, I thought, all right, let me tape Goliath's face. I even printed up, you know, for this, for this side of the room and for this side of the room. You each have your own image here. Um, but I printed up, and I was like, all right, nine foot nine inches. Let me find something in the room that's nine foot nine inches. And at first, I thought I was going to bring out ladders. I thought I was going to put some ladders out and maybe tape that face to ladders. And I thought, well, probably not practical, considering that people actually need to walk in this space. So I thought, all right, what's about nine foot nine? So I taped it to that, and then I measured after that, and I discovered that's actually six inches short. So add another six inches to that head on that side and that head on that side, and then that's, that's about how high Goliath stood. That's about how tall he stood. Nine foot, nine, in, uh, nine inches in English measurements. Now, I guarantee you have never seen someone so tall, right? You have never seen someone so tall. The tallest contemporary example in the Guinness Book of World Records was a man named Robert Wadlow. Do you ever hear that name? Robert Wadlow. He stood 8 foot 11 inches tall. So here's a picture of Robert Wadlow, 8 foot 11 inches tall. So you can see him there. Lots of pictures of him exist. And... Um, and I'm guessing that during the course of Mr. Wadlow's life, he was probably regularly uh, compared to Goliath when he lived back in the 1930s and 1940s when he was at the peak of his hype. But, but the comparison, in my opinion, is not sufficient. You know, to look at, at Wadlow, who was about a, a foot shorter than Goliath would have been, the comparison isn't quite right because when you look at Wadlow, one of the things that, that you could see about him was he was tall and kind of lanky. And he actually had some difficulty getting around. Uh, he had a lot of uh, medical needs. You know, he would stand straight and tall for the pictures. But when he was trying to get around, he wasn't very mobile. He was tall, lanky, and not very mobile. But when you look at what Scripture describes Goliath as being, Goliath was both tall and muscular. And the Scripture tells us that he wore a coat of armor... And in our measurements, that coat of armor would weigh 125 pounds. So just imagine putting something, like, you know, if you're going to put, I, I used to have a friend that would put on a, a sack when we would go um, walking, and he would do that to just weigh himself down and get a little bit more exercise in the process of walking. We used to walk Lake Scranton up in northeast Pennsylvania, do a circle around it, and he always had this heavy, heavy pack on him. And you have Goliath here, he's wearing... This, this coat of armor that weighs about 125 pounds in our measurements, but he's wearing it like it's a light jacket. Like that's, that's no sweat, right? So I think his chest must have been massive, just like this big barrel of a chest. And I imagine that his legs were probably thick like the trunk of a tree. Goliath wasn't just tall. He was strong. And I get the impression, because he was a, a, a trained fighter, that he was also mobile. He was someone who could use his massive size in battle, and he seemed to take great delight in watching others cower before him. I think it was his favorite thing. I think he just loved watching people react to his giant form and his intimidating words, and people would cower before him, and I think he loved it. I get the impression that his whole sense of identity and that his whole sense of self-worth was wrapped up in his great size and in, in his fighting ability. And I think that that's what he thought he offered to this world. Certainly in the context of the Philistines, that's what they valued from him. And this is something they were happy to put on display day after day, attempting to intimidate the people of, of Israel. And we're told here that each day Goliath would come before the men of Israel. He would do this night and day. So he'd do this a couple times a day. And he would challenge them to fight. Now, do you blame any one of them 
for not wanting to take him up on that task. If you saw a giant who was mobile, who was strong, who was clearly someone who understood how to engage in battle, do you think you would have been the first to volunteer to take this guy on head-to-head, man-to-man? Do you think you would have done it? I doubt that most people on the face of this earth would do this, and Goliath would ask every day, come on, someone's got to volunteer for this task. But then the men of Israel, as they're looking at this, they're thinking, that is illogical. This is illogical. One of us cannot fight this guy. If one of us attempts to fight this guy, we're just going to die one at a time. It seemed illogical to them. And, that, you know, they looked at this situation, and they thought, all right, there's not somebody among us that can physically subdue this powerful, armor-covered, weapon-wielding giant. And we're told when you look in 1 Samuel 17, a little bit further down, that this spectacle continued for 40 days. So you have a 40-day stretch of time of this mockery as Goliath would get up and he'd mock the people of Israel and he'd mock their king and he'd mock their God. And you have King Saul and you have the army of Israel looking weaker and weaker and weaker in the process. And I'm sure that their morale was waning as time went on. And, uh, and again, also consider this, not even Saul, who was king of Israel at this time, who we're also told was a head taller than your standard person. So tall, Saul was a pretty big guy himself, but not even Saul was a head taller than the average man was willing to put his life on the line to fight this Philistine champion. So you have the people saying, none of us wants to do it, and then they're looking at their king, and he doesn't want to do it. And every day they get mocked, and there's no solution and it drags on for 40 days. And you know what happens after a 40-day period of time? You start to get desperate. You start thinking, all right, there's got to be some way this gets addressed. You start becoming a little more open to options that you might not have been open to on day one. And David's brothers were among the army serving with, or among the, the men serving with Israel's army. And in the midst of this, they're hearing this day in and day out, and knowing that these brothers are there, David's father, Jesse, instructs David to do something. He says, I want you to bring them some food. I want you to bring them some grain. I want you to bring them some bread. But I also want you to bring some cheese to share with their commander. And so David said, okay, I'm going to do that. And while he was fulfilling Jesse's request, he started learning more about what was taking place. And when you look at verses 26 and 27... It says this, so David's finding out info from the people that are there, and it says, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And by the way, that was like the ultimate insult during that time. And by the way, like even in our day, try it. I bet you someone will feel insulted. You call them, you uncircumcised Philistine, try it. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. And they were talking about the ways that that person would be rewarded and blessed and taken care of. Now, why was David asking questions about what was going on here? You know, what's going through his mind? Why is he asking these questions? Scripture tells us when you get a little bit further into 1 Samuel 17 that David's brother Eliab got really, really annoyed with the fact that David was making this inquiry. He didn't like it. He's like, what are you doing? Like, don't pester us. Don't bother us. 
He, he snapped at him, the Scripture seems to indicate, and basically accused him of just showing up so he could watch a fight. He's like, you're here just so you can see the spectacle. Why don't you just go home? Thanks for the bread. Go home. And David looks at it, and it's a true brother moment, right? He looks at it, he's like, what's the deal, man? Like, what did I even do? Do you ever have a moment like that with your siblings where you're, you're like, what did I even say? And that was David's response. He's like, what did I even say? I literally just asked a question. And right now you're thinking back to a fight you had with your brother or your sister somewhere along the way. You're like, I didn't even do anything, right? I didn't even do anything. This is an aside, but you know what my siblings used to do to me? I'm an oldest brother. I have younger sisters. We would sit at a table. I kid you not. This is the honest truth. I'm not just trying to defend myself. But we would sit there. My dad's assumption was that I was always at fault for whatever trouble. So my younger sisters would look at me and they would just kind of get a wink in their eye, and we'd be sitting at a restaurant table, and then one of them would just be sitting there and go, ow! And I'd be eating my food, and I'd look, and they're like, don't kick me under the table. And I'd be like, Dad, I did not do anything. He'd be like, John, do not kick your sisters. I was like, I'm, literally, I'm not even like, I can't even reach them from here, right? And then we would have conflict. So I grew up, you know, understanding that. Maybe some of you understand that, and you could see David and his brother we're at a spot where they were like, all right, don't annoy me, just your presence annoys me. This is, a, this is a moment that we are tested, we are already on edge. Thank you for the food, now get lost. Don't ask questions, don't go around talking to everybody. I don't want my little brother walking around here asking everybody a whole bunch of things about what's going on. And David looks at this, he's like, I didn't even, like, I hardly said anything. Just asking a question, but Eliab snaps at him in the midst of it. But in the midst of David asking those questions, word also gets back to Saul. And word gets back to Saul that David was taking a heightened interest in what was taking place here. And I think Saul had the impression that David was going to maybe offer a suggestion or offer a solution. And so he summoned him to come before him. And when you look at verse 32 of chapter 17, it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, so he's speaking of himself, he says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, do you think Saul was used to people coming up to him and volunteering to do this? Saul himself didn't want to do it. Other people didn't want to do it. People were not rushing to this task. But here you have David saying to Saul, give me a shot. I'll go fight him. Give me a shot. I'll do it. Now, again, let me come back to our original question. What would you attempt if you were certain you could not fail? In life, what would you attempt if you were 100% certain you could not fail? There was something in David's heart that was stirring. And in ways that might be hard for others to understand, David, when he looked at this situation, he was absolutely certain that he would be granted victory if he fought Goliath. There wasn't a, an ounce of doubt in his mind. He knew that he was going to be granted victory if he fought him. And so he looks at Saul and he's basically saying, give me a shot. Give me a chance. Now, let me say this. Let me, let me step away from the story for just a moment and just say something that I hope will encourage you. But I want to usher, I want to I say this a little bit like a challenge, but also something that I want us to keep our eyes open to should the opportunity present itself to you at some point. But I hope that at some point in your life, the Lord leads you to do something that seems impossible to everybody else in your life. But deep in your heart, you know, because he's spoken to you about it, that it's all going to work out. Even though everybody else around you thinks it's crazy, even though everybody else thinks that you're nuts for attempting it, I hope he gives you the faith to see the outcome as certain 
before you even begin working on the process toward the impossible goal that he sets before you. And some of you already know have had moments like that. I could tell you, I was, as I was thinking about this this week, there are four moments, I'm not going to go into detail about them, three ministry-related, one personal, but there were four moments in my life that I could point to that I looked at and, and others told me that what I had on my heart to do, that I believed that the Lord had placed upon my heart to do, I was told it was impossible, I was told it couldn't be done, I was told it was not wise to get myself involved in it. And yet I was absolutely convinced that the Lord was calling me to do those specific things. And so I went and I did those things, certain that the Lord was going to grant victory in each of them, and He absolutely did. And when I think back on it, like, I have this thought that when I go back and I evaluate my life someday, that if I have that opportunity to, to be a bit reflective before I pass away, that those are some of the key moments I'm going to think back on and I'm going to say, you know what, that, those were some of the best moments of my life. Few things has, have ever made me feel so alive as running face forward into something that seemed impossible to everybody else, and yet in my heart and in my mind, God had given me perfect peace about it because I was convinced that he was going to give victory and that it was actually his calling to pursue the specific thing he had set before me. I hope if you have not yet had that experience, that you will have that experience because it's a wonderful thing and it's a true test of faith. And I hope that if you have had that experience, that you'll remain open to the Lord giving you more experiences like that over time where you just completely submit yourself to obedience to Him even when the rest of the world tells you you are absolutely out of your mind. Now, one chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13 we're told something about what was happening in David's life that would probably prompt him to be open to a, an experience like this. We're told that at the time when Samuel anointed David to be the king who would eventually replace Saul, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David in that moment. And now I believe, when, we, when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, I believe that we could see that the Holy Spirit was guiding David's thoughts. And the Holy Spirit was guiding David's actions. And in faith, David could see Goliath defeated before the battle ever began. And I think when you look at even the words that David says here, you can see the confidence that David had in mind. This isn't confidence in himself. What David is confident of is that the Lord will use his life to do something miraculous here. David had confidence in the Lord, and you could see that confidence on display in his conversation with Saul. When you look at verse 37, look at what, what David says here. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now, what was David doing? Well, he was talking about all the times that he had been caring for the sheep that belonged to his family. And frequently, when you're caring for sheep, and you're just out in the wild, and you're bringing them places where they can graze, other animals that are predatory animals look at those sheep, and sheep aren't all that difficult for a predator animal to come and devour. They look at that, it's like, oh, good, someone brought nuggets, right? They're like, oh, good, someone brought a snack to the field. And at times when David is going out, and by the way, your wealth in that era was frequently tied to your livestock, to your sheep, also your food, they were your grocery store, they were your store of wealth, they were a commodity, they, you could use them in trade. 
<laughs> you can make clothes out of it. They were valuable in lots of different ways. And so David understood that if he was going to be a good shepherd, he needed to care for these sheep. And frequently, aggressive animals would come and attempt to attack these sheep. And so you have David here saying to Saul, saying, listen, I don't have credentials that I could hand you as, you know, I fought in this war and I fought in this war and I fought in this war. That's not the kind of credential that I can hand you. But what I can tell you is this. I've seen the Lord deliver me from the paw of a lion. I've already seen it happen with my eye, and I believe He can do it again. I've seen the Lord deliver me from the paw of the bear. So if I've already fought lions, and if I've already fought bears, and I've already seen the hand of God protect me in the midst of those moments, I'm telling you right now, the next paw or the next hand that comes against me, the paw or the hand of this giant Philistine, I'm certain the Lord's going to deliver me from him as well. You wait and see. You watch. It's going to happen. And I'm certain that when David spoke this to Saul, he didn't speak in a soft voice. He didn't speak in a timid voice. He didn't speak in a quiet way. I think Saul could see the fire in his eyes. I think Saul could look at him and just see, he's not kidding. Like this young guy, by the way, David's not a little boy. He's a young man. This young guy, I think he means this. Scripture is also clear that the Lord will take the heart of kings and steer them wherever he wants. And I think the 40-day process leading up to this had prepared Saul's heart for this moment because there was no other solution. It wasn't like people were lining up to fight Goliath. And Saul hears David say these things, and I believe that the Spirit of God influenced Saul to demonstrate an, a, a measure of favor toward David, to give him the opportunity to do this. And the Scripture says that Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, I don't know if Saul thought David was going to be toast. I don't know if, if he thought, you know what, like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Maybe he'll win, maybe he won't win. But either way, he gives him his blessing. He gives him permission to go and, and pursue the Philistine. And so at that point, the Scripture tells us that Saul took his his own armor, and he placed it on David, and David gave it a try. Again, sometimes I see this portrayed by people like, like David was a little boy trying to wear grown-up man's armor. David was a young man. You could call him like a, a youth, but he, he was man size, right? He's not like a little kid trying to wear grown-up armor. Saul, wasn't, Saul was a big guy, and he, he also wasn't so dumb to say, you know, let me put my armor on someone that looks like a little five-year-old, Right? He's seeing him as a man. He's saying, all right, well, if you're going to go face this guy, he's covered in armor, he's got weapons. Here, just wear my armor. It's not like everybody had a coat of armor, right? You reserve those for specific people. So he said, try my armor on. David tries the armor on, but decides, you know, I'm not really used to wearing something like this. Like, I, ha I haven't had time to get used to this or adjust to this. I don't think it's a good idea, so he takes it back off. He's like, I I'm just going to take it off. I'm, I'm going to go without armor. Okay. And uh, when you look at this, I actually think that the, what was really taking place here is that the Lord wanted to display that His strength is sufficient in battle. And facing Goliath without any armor, I think that would provide a greater demonstration of the Lord's power. So I think that that's actually what was at work here. And instead of bringing a sword into battle, David brought a staff and a sling and five smooth stones, even though he only ended up needing one. 
And the Scripture tells us when you look at verses 41 down to 49, it says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Scripture goes on to say in verse 48, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, notice this, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. So after 40 days of mocking the people of Israel and mocking David and mocking God, Goliath was brought down by an unarmored man with a sling and a rock. The Spirit of God was guiding David. The Spirit of God told him he could not fail. The Spirit of God empowered the words that David said. The Spirit of God... uh, empowered the running steps that David took and the trajectory of the rock that David slung. And now the champion of the Philistines was dead, lying face forward on the ground, right there in front of everybody. And by the way, I can't help but wonder how the conversation went when David came home to his elderly father, Jesse, later that day. And Jesse asked, hey, how did your brothers like the bread? (laughs) Might be a couple other things I should tell you about. They loved the bread, though. The bread was good. But when Goliath had spent 40 days mocking the men of Israel, he wasn't just mocking their army. You know, we've heard this story. You've heard this story all throughout the course of your life. You don't even have to be a follower of Christ to be familiar with this, at least portions of this account from Scripture. But for 40 days, he's mocking the men of Israel, but he's not just mocking their army. He came out twice a day, ultimately, to mock their God. He's there to mock their God. His actions actually remind me of of, uh, activity we commonly see Satan engaged in. Satan, Scripture reveals to us, is a mocker. He mocks God's people, and he mocks the Lord himself. And in fact, if you remember, during the course of the earthly ministry of Jesus, we see Satan taking a similar approach to to Goliath. If you recall, after a 40-day period where Jesus fasted in the desert, You have Satan showing up with his words of mockery, his words of temptation, and his words to to try and incite Christ to have an unhealthy reaction. When you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it tells us this. 
It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you continue reading in Matthew chapter 4, we're also told that Satan tried to tempt Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple to see if the angels would catch him. And then he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just worship him. But Jesus resisted Satan's mockery, and he resisted Satan's tempting offers, and instead he responded with the same offensive weapon that we've been entrusted with, the Word of God. Jesus quoted Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy to the devil multiple times and basically then told Satan, scram, leave, be gone. If you're engaged in living the Christian life, what's your overall impression of the kind of life that you've been called to live? What's your impression of this life? What do you think it's like? Or what's it been like for you up to this point? Is it a life of strength or is it a life of weakness? Is it a life of victory or is it a life of defeat? What's your impression of it? Are you running toward the impossible things that you've been promised in Christ? Or are you cowering in fear at the intimidating voice of mockery that comes at you from another direction? Those are our options, right? When David secured victory over Goliath, that was a victory that was shared with the entire army of Israel. And the Scripture tells us that they then went on and, and plundered the Philistines. And when David stepped forward in battle, he was representing them all. And when he won, they all won. That's how it worked. Jesus secured victory over the grave and over Satan when he rose from the grave. And that's a victory that's supernaturally shared with every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped in on behalf of all humanity, and when He won, all who are united to Him by faith, we all won. Two portions of Scripture that highlight this that I want to show you. First is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. See how we're led? We're led in triumphal procession. And I want you to think about that in regard to your own Christian life, in, in regard to your own Christian walk. This isn't a, a, a walk of defeat. This isn't a walk of dismay. This isn't a walk of, of continual discouragement. Yes, there are difficult things that you and I will face this side of heaven, but the ultimate victory has already been secured on our behalf through Jesus Christ, and He shares that with us as we're united to Him by faith. And the Scripture tells us we're literally being led in triumphal procession. And I think it's helpful for me to know that so that I walk throughout life with that in mind. I think it's helpful for you to know that so that you walk through life with that in mind because there are going to be moments that come at you and me that really have a tinge of that voice of mockery that might want to influence you and me to start thinking less of the victory that Christ has secured for us. In fact, I think it's, it's a, a voice that maybe tries to influence us not to think about it at all. Not to even realize that victory has been secured for us. Not to even think about the fact that Christ is literally leading us in triumphal procession. Now think of one of your more, more recent low moments. 
Did you feel in that moment like you were being led in triumphal procession, or did you feel discouraged without the ability to see beyond it? One of the things that's super helpful for us is our faith in Jesus Christ grows, and you'll begin to notice this over time. You're going to start noticing as your faith grows that even in the midst of your low moments, you're not going to have to wait for it to resolve. You're not going to have to wait till it's all done and finished. You're going to even be thinking about it and praising God for it in the midst of it that the Lord ultimately has secured victory over whatever you're currently going through. And ultimately, what was ultimately defeating us, sin, Satan, and death, Christ has secured victory over these things, and He shares it with us. We're being led in triumphal procession. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, it says this in a similar way. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Let me pause there. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with with its legal demands, the record of debt that stood against us. What is that? Well, that's all the things that you and I have ever done that, that are an offense to the Lord, the sins that we've committed. And you know what the mocking voice of Satan loves to do to you and to me? To bring up that canceled record. Now, in God's economy, in God's eyes, that record's canceled. Whatever low moment you can think of where you could say, all right, you know what, that was a pretty embarrassing thing. I'm glad a whole bunch of people don't know about it. And even if a whole bunch of people know about it and you're feeling embarrassed about it, what does Satan love to do? He loves to remind you of your low moments where you once were. And he wants that to be forefront on your mind. He wants you to wake up in the morning and feel bad about mistakes in the past that you can't go back and change. And he wants you to think about that and he wants you to identify very strongly with those things so that you start thinking of yourself through that lens. And then you look at a portion of Scripture like this, and it tells us that the victory that Christ has secured on our behalf resulted in that record of debt that stood against us being canceled. It's canceled. It's, your sin is forgiven. It's completely canceled. And then, in addition to that, the Scripture tells us, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So if you value what Christ has done on our behalf, keep that in mind, that He took that record of debt that was against you, it was nailed to the cross, it's already been paid for. It's already been taken care of. And then, how about this? In light of the mockery that Satan and his emissaries try to cast against the children of God, it tells us that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. What does Satan try and do to you? Lead you to open shame or lead you to stew in your shame forgetting that the record of debt that once stood against you has been completely canceled. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes Satan and those aligned with Satan and says, no, here's how it goes. It gets turned around. I'm exposing you to open shame. I triumph over you. The victory that Christ has secured was representative. It was on our behalf. Think of David representing the people of Israel going into battle. And as he defeated the Philistines, that that victory was a victory shared with the whole army. It was a victory that God gave David, and it was shared with everybody. And it gives us a picture of what Jesus has done for us in the spiritual realm of even greater significance. He represented us. The victory that he secured over a foe that you and I would look at and say, too big, can't do anything about it, totally afraid to do anything. I feel paralyzed. He mocks me. 
You know, the, the devil, he mocks me, he brings up my past, he brings up all the things that I'm ashamed of. What does Christ do? He rushes into that battle, secures the victory on your behalf, and then shares the victory with you. And you get to celebrate as if you had something to do with it, even though you didn't. You just trusted him who did the work for you. And I love that we're being told that we're being led in triumphal procession, being told that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Final time I'll ask it today. But I really want you to think about it. What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Guess what? In Christ, you can't fail. The spiritual forces that stood against you are already defeated foes. Their victory is not victory. Their perceived victory is not victory. Christ's victory is actual victory. They, the spiritual forces that have stood against us, have been exposed to open shame because Christ has triumphed over them. And as Scripture reminds us time and time again, His victory is now our victory. And that's the kind of victory that you and I are called to walk in has nothing to do with anything that we've ever earned or deserved. It has nothing to do with a battle that we fought in our own strength. It has everything to do with the kind of mindset that David demonstrated when he said, the Lord is going to give me victory in the midst of this. And you and I can look at the things that we're dealing with and say, you know what? The Lord already has secured victory on my behalf. And it's time that I start living victoriously, knowing that that's exactly what he's already done. In acknowledging him, and saying thank you to him who secured the victory on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the reminders you give us in your word of who you are and what you do. Lord, we're just so grateful that we have these things to point our hearts to you and to help us to see the things that, naturally speaking, we weren't noticing. Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that we could look at a portion of Scripture that is spoken of primarily in our context, in our culture, like folklore, like a children's story, and realize that that's not what's presented to, to us here at all. This is something that, that ultimately is giving us a foretaste of the victory that your son Jesus Christ secured on our behalf. Father, we're just so grateful for the examples of this over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And here we have this opportunity to see this representative victory, this victory that we get to experience because one man stood in our place, your son, Jesus. Father, we're just so grateful for that. We pray that we would walk in victory. We pray that we would be men and women who submit ourselves completely over to you, that we would see a demonstration of your Spirit's power, that we would feel compelled to run toward things at times that others seem to be fearful of because maybe their, their faith isn't strong enough yet, or maybe their mind isn't set on the things that matter to you, or maybe you've just uniquely shown us something that, that we're seeing before you've given others the privilege to see it. Whatever it may be, Lord, we pray that when you impress upon our heart to be obedient, to submit ourselves to you, that we would say yes, and that our feet would go in the direction that that you compel us to go. Lord, I'm just so grateful for a portion of Scripture like this that reminds us that your power is sufficient. And that even though this world is bent on looking at things like the height of a giant or the, the weight and size of his weapons and armor, 
that you look at these things and, and you realize metal is not something that, that can stand against your divine power. Flesh and bone is not something that can stand against your divine power. You are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. And we're grateful that through the indwelling presence of your spirit, that you grace us with your power. You call us to live a life where we honor you, but you don't leave us powerless in the midst of this life. You give us the privilege, you give us the opportunity to walk with you and observe your power at work in our lives, and then give you the credit for the things that we've had the privilege to watch you do. Again, Father, as I mentioned earlier, I pray that that would be the type of experience that you give to us over and over and over again, where we could look at certain things and say, you know what, from the world's eyes, this is not valued. From the world's eyes, this seems impossible. And yet I know that God can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish in the midst of this. So Lord, we pray that by your grace that you would help us to be confident in you. And we pray that we would trust you in the midst of all circumstances, whatever they may be. Again, Father, thank you so much for the work that your Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for every opportunity that you give us to think about it. We give you the praise for all these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.